Hi, this is Tom Warman, former hard rock record producer, current Berkshire's innkeeper, and this is Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to the latest episode of Focus on Metal. So as you may have figured out from the beginning of the show, our very special guest this week is legendary album producer Tom Worman. When I look back at the stuff this guy produced, just even going back to the cheap trick stuff, I mean, the guy that he produced the Dream Police album, pretty freaking incredible. And uh, just an amazing, amazing production life this guy has had. Just the the amazing albums, the hits, all the stuff he's worked with, you know, people he's worked with, places he's been. Just like I said, you know, and he says it in the interview too, you know, dream job doing what he did. And I would have to agree with him. And of course, speaking of dream jobs, hope you guys enjoyed our talk with Joel MacGyver last week. I mean, that guy to be able to do all the writing that he does from the magazines and the books and everything else that he does. And he's, you know, he's a pretty, uh, pretty well uh, published author, not just books, but he's also got stuff in papers in the UK as well and major music magazines and stuff like that. To be able to do all the stuff that he's doing, you know, kind of like what we do on the show, but at a much better level. And of course, getting paid for it. Definitely a dream gig right there. And of course, part of that whole thing that makes his whole world work, as you heard in the interview, is the guy is definitely a super down-to-earth, really cool guy. I mean, what you get on the interview, that's what you get. That's Joel MacGyver. Great guy, and we always love having him on the show, and I'm sure that uh, probably by the end of the year, there'll be a MacGyver Alive 5 episode coming up, too. And, of course, one of the big chunks of news this week, of course, besides the impending Overkill album, can't wait for that, is, of course, that Judas Priest, you know, they're releasing Redeemer of Souls on July 8th. They are taking it on the road throughout the U.S. starting on October 1st. That first date kicks off in Rochester, New York. It goes through Indiana, Kentucky, Atlantic City. It goes all the way out until November 18th. It rounds it out in Salt Lake City, Utah. I will say we're pretty psyched. There's a date October 14th at the Songus Center right here in our home base of Lowell, if we weren't being lazy, I think that Richie and I could actually walk there from the studio. And of course, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I will say that just recently, Richie and I had recorded a whole discussion about the Priest album and any kind of subsequent tours. And I have to say that uh, Richie called it. So now I'm looking back and I'm looking at that discussion and I'm thinking, well, am I going to even air that one or not? Because the answer has already come. Priest is definitely doing a pretty decent tour of the Redeemer of Souls album. So I'm have to go back and look at that discussion and decide, am I going to put that in an episode or not? But that's what I get when we're trying to do all kinds of crazy stuff and we're busy and we have a little window to actually get a discussion down. Of course, Richie did pick the topic, so I'm going to place the blame on him. I'm kind of inspired by Tom Warman right now because, you know, I'm the one producing the episode. I'm getting the final cut, the final decision on the content. So, yeah, you know, I'm going to blame Richie. So if you want to see all the dates, you you can head up to focusonmetal.blogspot.com. I got a post there with all the dates. You can also go and head up to tickets.judaspriest.com and see what kind of packages they have, what's available, all that good stuff as well. So, the priest once again on the road. <laughs> All 
right. Track of the week. So originally I was thinking about not even doing a track of the week this week just because there was so much cool stuff with Tom that it's easily going to fill out the episode. And I figured, you know, just have a whole thing, just everyone just listening to what Tom Warman has to say. You know, here in America, we're coming up to the 4th of July weekend. And I thought, you know, not everyone listens on the day the podcast comes out. Obviously, if you're listening on internet radio, yeah, you're listening on to a Tuesday or a Thursday or, you know, depending on the station you're listening to us on. But if you're listening to us off of iTunes, hey, maybe you're at the beach, you're chilling. Good time to listen to Focus on Metal. Have a good, long conversation with Tom Warman. So I thought, yeah, no track of the week this week. Just going to be 100% Tom. And then I had this very, very cool album drop into my lap. Came out on Massacre Records. Spanned is from Germany. And Massacre actually classifies them as dirty metal. And it's just incredibly cool, cool stuff. The band I'm talking about is called Gun Barrel, and their brand new one is called Damage Dancer. These guys have been putting stuff out since 2000. Back in 2000, they had a self-released one called Back to Suicide. Since then, they've had Power Drive and Battle Tested just right along. Last one they did was Brace for Impact back in 2012. Like I said, these guys are putting out stuff on a fairly regular basis. I'm thinking to myself, why have I never heard of these guys? So this is, you know, pretty cool stuff. This is their sixth album that they've put out and just solid stuff. And of course, part of the whole thing, too, is one of our former Focus on Metal guests, Pete Zeke, is actually involved somewhere in the background here with some of the the production work and stuff. So that kind of even adds to the coolness for it as well. And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's like I said, it's pretty cool. And I will say that these guys are also are the special guest on the uh, Set Your Soul on Fire tour, which is the, uh, the Brainstorm's latest tour. And of course, if you don't haven't ever heard of Brainstorm, check them out as well. They are an absolutely killer band. So, but let's swing back to Gun Barrel here. Like I said, these guys came out in 2000. They had their mini CD, Back to Suicide, cool stuff. Had the worldwide debut with Power Drive. They've just kind of been just working through it all. And uh, they actually did contribute a song to the Motorhead tribute sampler called Motor Morphosis. They contributed the track Out of the Sun. Pretty cool. And, uh, you know, hey, what else can I say about these guys? They have a lot of cool kind of elements that are going in here. Some of these songs have a really cool, old-school, deep purple kind of vibe. There's a a song on here called Back Alley Ruler, and that's what it first jumped out when I heard it was, ooh, that sounds like purple. Just really cool stuff. There's even a little bit of ACDC kind of influence in here as well. Cool stuff. Highly recommend it. Like I said, it is on Massacre Records. It's called Damage Dancer, and I figured, what the hell? So impressed with this album. I don't know. Maybe it just hit me just right, but I'm going to play the title track a track of the week this week so here it is from gun barrel off their brand new one damage dancer it's the title track damage dancer
There you go. Your track of the week, Gun Barrel, off the new Damage Dancer album. Hope you guys like that one. If you did, you want to find out more about them, you can head up to www.gunbarrel.de. And of course, the page comes up all in German. If you can't do German, if you look up on the top corner of the page, there's a little link for the Union Jack. Click that, you get the English translation. However, I will say that a lot of the stuff that's actually on the page still retains the German text, so a little knowledge of German might be helpful. You can also pick up some gun barrel merch up there, and they also have some videos, including a video of the making of Damage Dancer. So, uh, as I said, if you're into that, you want to check them out, gunbarrel.de. And, of course, they're always on the ubiquitous Facebook, facebook.com slash gunbarrel. And if you do that, let them know you heard them right here on Focus on Metal. So, of course, one of the things you hear a lot on Focus on Metal lately has been producers. For whatever reason, Richie has been able to just pull producers left and right. Not sure what it is. I don't know if the Irish accent comes through on the emails. I've got no idea. But he seems to be able to have a, a way of getting producers willing to come on the show. We've had some great ones in the past. And today's guest is absolutely no exception. That's the one and only Tom Warman. You know, we'll get into it in the interview, but this guy has had just a stellar career. I mean, first of all, you know, he, he comes from our hometown. He comes from Boston. Good stuff. He was an A&R man, did incredible stuff. And we talk about it in the interview, but... This is the guy that signed Boston. And for those of us who live in Boston, that was a big deal. And of course, anybody that was alive and was buying albums when Boston's first album dropped, that thing was a monolith. Everybody bought that album. It was on the radio constantly. It was insane. Amazing stuff. And it was like hit after hit on that album. But, you know, he wouldn't produce that one, of course. But uh, he is the guy that signed him. And you kind of you listen to Boston and go, why? Why did no one ever sign them? And, 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 you know, what is it? But we get into that in the interview, but he's done also incredible other stuff. You know, he worked with Ario Speedwagon, he signed them, and Molly Hatchet, the Nuge, you know, Uncle Ted. A lot of our, uh, all our Uncle Ted enjoyment goes back to, to Tom Warman signing Uncle Ted. Good stuff. And of course, as far as on the production end of it, you know, a lot of you know him as one of the producers for Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, Striper Kicks, L.A. Guns, Poison. All, you know, so amazing ass resume. And of course, I didn't even mention I mentioned it earlier, you know, Cheap Trick and those albums just they still amaze me to this day. The stuff he did on Cheap Trick. And then, of course, one of his final projects in uh, in L.A. before heading back here to Massachusetts is he did the Rockstar soundtrack. And that is actually one of my favorite soundtracks. And I still enjoy that one constantly. On my iPod, I literally have a playlist. It's just that. If I just feel like ah, I just I need that, boom, I put that playlist on. Good stuff. And of course, now the guy is out and he is an innkeeper. He is uh, an innkeeper for Stone Over Farm. That is S-T-O-N-O-V-E-R Farm. A great B&B out in Lenox, Massachusetts. I think Lenox must be kind of like the B&B capital of the world. You look it up and you're like, holy crap, I can't believe how many B&Bs are out here. But Tom has the only luxury B&B. So he talks about it a little bit as well. But uh, definitely, if you're looking for full-service B&B, uh, Stoneover Farm is the place to go. So I am definitely psyched to talk to Tom. He was involved in a lot of great albums. It's good to get his perspective. This is one of these guys that you want to hear from because he's the guy who was behind the board. He knows the stories, and he's kind of laying a lot of this stuff out for us. 
did a great interview pretty much didn't hold anything back. We really appreciated the hell out of that as well. And I know a lot of listeners have written in and they talk about the fact they really like when we have guys like like Tom and we had Keith Olsen and Bo Hill and Mike Frazier. They love having these guys on because they kind of have the stories about everything, give you a little bit of insights you don't normally have. This interview is definitely going to give you some of those as well. Get some insights on Dee Schneider. Get some insights on George Lynch. Uh, just There's a lot of gems happening here. And uh, Tom is just really good. He's really good with the music history and stuff as well. So if you're a music geek, I think you're going to love today's talk with Tom Warman. You know, and also talking about him being utterly honest. Here he is. He's on a show called Focus on Metal. And right at almost the outset of the interview, he lays it right out and says to us that he's really not into metal. So, I mean, what producer is going to say that right off the bat like that? But, he, you know, this is a guy who's been there, done that. And doesn't, you know, mind speaking his mind. And he puts it all in perspective as you go along. So when you hear him say that, just don't throw your hands up and be like, oh, he doesn't like metal. Screw him. I mean, this guy has been the architect of so many things that got people into metal. So people that might think, well, you know what? Poison's not metal. And yeah, I kind of think the same thing as well. But poison was a gateway drug that got a lot of other people into metal. And then they went along their way and found cooler and cooler stuff. And as I said, Tom is the architect of that. So he knew how to put a lot of metal, hair metal, whatever you want to call it, bands into a listenable context that made people's ears want to hear more of it. So as far as for metal history in general and hard rock history in general, this guy is an important dude, even though he really professes his great love of more of the power pop. I have to hand it to him. He is just an amazing, amazing producer, great talent. And I don't think there's a listener out there that can't point to at least one of his albums and talk about how much they loved that album. And since Tom has so much good stuff to say, this is going to be another one of those music light episodes, just like last week with Joel. It's kind of let the guy speak for himself. A lot of the stuff he's talking about, you know, the music, we might do some twist of, you know, a cover of that song or something like that, just to change it up. But I mean, everybody knows the music that Tom Warman was involved in. So uh, a little bit of a music light episode, but enough of that. Let me shut the hell up and let's get into a little bit of a talk with our special guest this week, former producer and now innkeeper, Tom Warman. All right, listeners, I know we always get a lot of great feedback whenever we have producers on the show and Richie has managed to go ahead and get contact with another great producer and that would be the one and only tom warman you heard his voice at the beginning of the show and how are we doing today tom very well and you i'm doing pretty good so of course we're sitting just outside of boston it's kind of a nice warmer day for a change i imagine it must be warming up out in the western mass for you as well god it's about time <laughs> <laughs> terrible winter terrible yeah. Yeah, for an old man like me, you know, it's worse. <laughs> so, so obviously, you know, one thing we'd like to let everybody know is that, of course, now you run a great bed and breakfast out in Lenox called uh, Stone Over Farm, correct? Yeah, yeah. Love it. If anybody's interested in hooking up and going out and being a guest, um, where would they head to? Well, it's Lenox, right, right down the road from Tanglewood. Uh, you know, the summer home of the Boston Symphony. Mm-hmm. Best, best not to try to come in the summer because we book up like a year in advance. Um, we are a very, you know, we're a unique property because we're the only luxury bed and breakfast that I've ever heard of, actually. Um, we're, we're all suites and every convenience you could think of. Something that I always wanted to do 
because we'd stay in a bed and breakfast, and uh, and it would be, uh, you know, all the same. They'd all be the same, and I didn't understand why they didn't have any conveniences, so I, I wanted to be wired. Hmm. And we do, you know, we do really well. It's a great life. Awesome. They could find more information on, on that at uh, stoneoverfarm.com, correct? That's right. S-T-O-N-O. A lot of people put in an E. It, I didn't do the spelling. It was there when I arrived. <laughs> Heck of a journey for you from being an A&R guy to being a producer and now being an innkeeper. That's, um, that's, that is quite the journey. Well, interesting life, and, and, and this was, uh, you know, considering how uh, things were when I left L.A., when I decided to leave L.A., this was really a good move. It was a, a kind of a great escape. Um, you know, to, to, to be fortunate enough to have a, a, a life after your first career, which, you know, ended in my mid-50s, is a great thing. I'm, 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 I'm really fortunate to have found this place after uh, 23 rock and roll years in Los Angeles, mostly in the control room, mm. um, to be out here <clears throat> in, in, the, in the country, in the fresh air, in the beautiful Berkshires, um, completely new life, totally. Yeah, really. No, no smog. You get mountains and seasons and all that good stuff. Rooms yeah, seasons, especially seasons. Rooms with really like windows. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Rooms with windows. Yeah. And wow. uh, and also, you know, healthy living because I was really ready to uh, to ditch any bad habits that I had picked up in recording studios over the years, and there were many. <laughs> That is legend, and I, I know even you know from myself and, and my kind of local recording history, it was even it filtered even down there. I think more as a case of like, well, they're doing it out in L.A. We guess we got to do it around Boston too. So yeah, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so my co-host Richie, he's kind of uh, he's he's been the one who's been I, I don't know in a way kind of fortunate to not be having played in a band or played in instruments or anything, just been a fan. And and um, one of the things he was really curious about was. You know exactly what does an A and R guy do, and what were you doing as an A and R guy? Well, an A and R guy is uh, well, it's it's a um, kind of a changing situation. It's a uh, you know it's it's a uh, it started out A and R stood for or stands for artists and repertoire, meaning you know the 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 act and the songs that the act records. Um, in the old days, like you know, 50s and early 60s, the A&R guy shopped for tunes for the artist who was assigned to him. Mm-hmm. So if you were Frank Sinatra's A&R guy uh, at Capitol, you would uh, meet with publishers and songwriters and try to find, you know, the, the, the next come fly with me. Yeah, you spent a lot of time uh, in the Brill building. Yeah, and and this is why A and R men, uh, at least, um, I don't think they have it now. But when I started, we all had pianos in our offices, upright pianos, and and uh, occasionally people would come in and actually play and sing. You know, Meatloaf came in and with Jim Steinman, and Steinman sat down at the piano and he played, and Meatloaf rattled the walls, <laughs> and, that, and that was pretty interesting. The A and R function grew into simple talent scouting. 
really. Mm. But when the uh, singer-songwriter came on the scene and when bands started to write their own material, then uh, the A&R guy's just looking for a great act. Yeah. Um, you know, prior to that, nobody really wrote prior to the, I think, the, uh, the British invasion. Nobody wrote uh, their own material. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, except for folkies. You know, they, 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 singer-songwriters were, were new. And, you know, after that, uh, after the 60s, then, then it was all about um, sitting in your office, taking meetings with agents, uh, lawyers, managers, and they'd bring in tapes and want to sit with you while you listen to them. And I discouraged that and, and said it, it'd, be, it'd be better for you and better for me and better for the band if I did this, you know, away from the office when I can focus on the music, it, it, it'd be fair, mm. much, much fairer to the band. Yeah, and I would imagine, too, at that point in time that, that live, how a band was live was also very important to your decision. Well, yeah, sure. If they, if you know, if you like their tape, I mean, when we heard, for instance, uh, you know, Boston's manager came into the building and he... Uh, my friend Lenny Pizzi heard the tape first, and he came down to my office, and he said, Tom, I, I, I really want you to hear this, so, you know, and tell me what you think. And we, you know, we played, went, went into the office next door and played the demo cassette on. Hmm. And, the, and the first song was, was More Than a Feeling, and it was pretty close to what you hear. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, halfway through the second song, I, I just stopped the tape, and I said... I said, is, is this candid camera? <laughs> I, I really did. I said, what, is this a joke? I mean, why is this band available at the end of, of a day of shopping this band in New York? He said everybody had passed on it. And so I said to him, listen, if, if, if Lenny and I can see this band play live and they, they can come pretty close to what I'm hearing now, I guarantee you, you know, we'll sign the band, we'll give them a really wonderful deal. And that that's what it was all about. You had to fly out and see the band. Mm -hmm. I heard REO Speedwagon's um, nearly finished album, because it was a master purchase. It had been done in a small studio in Connecticut. And I liked it a lot, so I flew out to see them in Champaign, Illinois, at a club, and, you know, they blew the walls down. At that point, they were a hard rock band. Um, same thing with Cheap Trick, same thing with Ted Nugent. You know, you hear something and you want to know if it's the real deal, so you go and see it. Mm. And if it is the real deal, you jump up and down.
one of the things I've of, I've often read um, is that bands they play for the A&R guys to empty halls to a showcase. Did you ever yeah, have so to do any of those things? Because surely you're putting a band in an uncomfortable environment where they're used to having interactions with the crowd and they they might know that the guy is actually there to watch them perform. Oh right. Well, there were many of both kinds. There were lots of showcases. I went to hundreds of showcases, <laughs> mostly m mostly in rehearsal studios. Um, in L.A., there were a lot of showcases where um, you know a band would go to a club owner and say, "Can we play in your club? We've got a bunch of record guys coming down. We've got a bunch of labels, and uh, there's interest in us." And the club owner would say, "Sure, you can play here. You need to bring in." 30 of your friends, they need to buy at least two drinks apiece and pay a cover charge. Oh, I, I hated those days. <laughs> and that was called pay to play. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, that's, that's what it became because you were putting in a band that had really potentially no draw, you know, foregoing the opportunity to maybe put in a band that had a local following instead. So, so that was the deal. Um, you know, I spent my life in clubs waiting for the band to go on, and there weren't that many club dates that I saw that yielded anything. My friend and former employee, Tom Zutat, uh, went to see Guns N' Roses at the Roxy on Sunset Strip in L.A., and um, everybody was there. I wasn't. I don't know where I was, but... Every label was there. They were, you know, they had they had heated up and and and, and they were causing a, you know a lot of uh, uh, talk and they were the thing of the of the moment. And this is, uh, you know, I was I had uh, was with Motley Crue at the time, and it was such a, a a hotbed of activity. And there was something he expected so much competition that after two or three songs, he got up kind of stretched, let everybody see him. He was, he was known, you know, uh, he was at Geffen uh, and our man at the time. And he walked out and he did that purposefully so that everybody else would think he wasn't interested. And the next morning he signed them. <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah. So, but we spent a lot of time in clubs and that was the deal. Uh, but it all started with, it, it always started with a demo. Tom, can you tell us about some of the bands that became big that you put forward and didn't get signed? Well, yeah, there were three. <laughs> and, and it's it's it really a, a burden on me. Uh, it hurts every time I, I say it. But, yeah, um, Kiss was okay. one uh, because I had them... I, I had um, wanted to... Uh, I had signed this band called Wicked Lester... Hmm. And Gene and Paul were in that band. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of a pop band with a lot of hooky pop songs and a lot of um, backing vocals and harmonies. And there were seven people in the band. Yeah, it had flutes and things on that album, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and as soon as, they, uh, as soon as we bought the record, they broke up. We didn't pay a lot of money for the record. It was really cheap. And then uh, they, they formed a three-piece, Stan and uh, Stan. Um, that was his name, um, Gene and Paul, and they were Stan and, and Stan Eisen and Gene Klein. That was uh, 
that's that's what Paul Stanley and they just took on other names. So we went up to see him. I took my boss. We went up to see him. They were great. He just didn't get it. He was a good guy, my boss, but he turned down them. He turned down Rush, <laughs> whom I had free and clear. I mean, I was I was there real early on these on these people uh, on these bands, and then uh, same thing happened with uh, Leonard Skinner. You know, I saw them at a club in Macon, Georgia, a roadhouse, kind of out of town. And um, I took him to see them again. They were playing at a club in Nashville. And his comment was, good band, no songs. <laughs> Tom, what do you see in these bands? Is it like, is it instantaneous in the first 20 seconds you hear them? Or is it, you know, over time, they, they, they wear you down a little bit and you might say, okay, I get it now. No, that happens when you listen to a tape. For me, I sometimes I I needed three or four listenings before I it sunk in and I said, yeah, well, this is good. This is worth pursuing or seeing a little more of. But when you hear a band live, it, it's right away for me. Hmm. It, it was right away. I mean, there were some you know there were some bands that. Uh, that I went to see because the tape sounded okay. You know, like Ted Nugent. And I must, I want to emphasize that, that I had a long history with Ted and we never talked politics and I am a registered Democrat <laughs> and, and, you know, a moderate guy. Uh, I, I admit to being a gun owner, but, you know, I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> but, but we were all about music then. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I went to see, uh, I, I had heard that Ted Nugent was available, and this didn't excite me very much. Uh, his manager came in and, and uh, hyped him to me. And I happened to be going to Chicago for something else. So I said, well, set up something. And so he put Ted in, in uh, the, uh, uh, an auditorium at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And there were about 200 people there for the show. It was like, a, you know, a quarter full. And, you know, 20 seconds into, into the first song, I said, whoa, this is good. I mean, I was hooked immediately. And, and you know, maybe that was just me, mm. you know. But it just seemed that whatever I liked, people, people bought. Mm. If I liked it, uh, it seemed to be, you know, strike a chord in the in the, in the record-buying public. And it's interesting, but, too, to, you know, especially for some of our, our younger listeners to realize that at the time you were doing this, you weren't looking for flavor of the month. I mean, during the 80s, it was kind of like if you had this band that was, you know, had A, B, and C characteristics, it was everybody else was searching for that same band that had that. But when you were doing this, it was always just that's a great band. It wasn't, oh, we're trying to fill a niche. It was just all about a great artist and bringing them in no matter how they sounded and developing them. And it's totally right. different then. Yeah, there were there were lots of bands that offered something almost new, mm. completely new. I mean, music is derivative. We're all influenced by the people who came before us. But, you know, you look at some of the bands that came over from England you look at some of the bands that you know that 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 were signed in the seventies and and the even the early eighties. I don't know. I, you know, I don't want to sound like like my parents did, but 
it was sure different from today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Tom, which what band do you think it was that that you put forward and got signed that people said, "Oh, okay, we'll, we're definitely going to trust this guy's judgment from now on." Was the one that sticks out in the beginning? I think Cheap Trick. Okay. You know, because while they weren't huge, like um, you know Motley Crue or, or bands like that, um, they were musicians, musicians, uh, musicians, musicians. Um, you know, they're really well-respected, and, and uh, they were just different, classy, and, and uh, unique, and, and, and they were really the best band I ever worked with hmm, in, yeah. ter- in terms of musicianship and uh, originality and cleverness and intelligence and humor. And, man, they were good. Yeah. But, uh, so so w- when I did In Color, uh, and in... I guess, you know, the whole name was in color and black and white. It was their second album. Mm. Um, The first one they did with Jack Douglas. And when I did that, I said, this is good. This is is good. And that was my favorite thing, pop, power pop. I wasn't a metal guy by any stretch. Um, So I, I think after that, I felt pretty comfortable in um, putting myself out there as a producer. And the deal is, in those days, record producers became that by accident and became that almost overnight. Mm. Um, you know, I, was, I went in with Ted and, and spent a lot of time in, in the studio as an A&R man, but I offered so many suggestions that the guy who was his producer in name gave me co-production credit. Mm. So, so that's when uh, it was like, oh, a platinum album. Uh, you're a producer, you know, nice going. And then that they you, they kind of stick you in that pigeonhole for life, um, because I would have been really happy to have a shot at the Eagles, for instance, mm. but nobody would let me. They said, you don't you don't do that. You do this. You know, you do hard rock. So you were you were pushed into the producer role more than you wanted to go into it no, yourself. No, 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 no. I really wanted to be a producer. Okay, that was my dream. But I was pushed into you know the type of project that was definitely harder rock and a little simpler than I had wanted that, that I figured I, I was I was suited for. Yeah, because you know because I wanted to do. I like bands that were a little more, I don't know, they were more pop or, or you know, uh, I loved the Birds. I loved, I liked the Who, but, and, and they were pretty pop, too. Mm. Um, but but it, was, it was more power pop. Um, and and, and I, I'm very, I was really um, kind of very familiar with and schooled in um, stringed instruments that, and acoustic stringed instruments. I mean, I like country rock, bluegrass. Mm. Stuff like that, uh, and I did love rock and roll, but I didn't like I didn't love metal. I am in intense pain, Pinky. I mean, strict metal, like you know, Inagata Devita or you know, or Sabbath. I just wasn't a fan of that. When you talk about like with Cheap Trick, does that ever start to bother you with the people that kind of go back and do the revisionist thing of looking at like in color and they complain about the mix and stuff? Because to me, I mean, I've heard the Steve Steve Albini mix. I'm not impressed by it. And I felt that the mix that you put on there and the ones you put in the subsequent ones really served 
to what you kind of alluded to is kind of their power pop way of playing. Right. Well, yeah, that was, yeah, you, absolutely. And mm. thank you. Um, I, I feel exactly the same way. There, the deal is that um, we, uh, they asked uh, me to sign a um, kind of a, what, what's the word, a gag order, so that neither of us would talk about the other in the press. Unless, of course, I think we had good things to say. And I always have good things to say about them, but they, um, they apparently saw things in their memories that I didn't see. Mm-hmm. So, so we, uh, you know, aside from the fact that I, I did three albums with them and wasn't fired after the first, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm at a loss to uh, explain what their um, dissatisfaction was and why it developed. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me because even, yeah. I mean, to this day, I can put on the Dream Police and yeah. my 18-year-old daughter will be, can we play the whole album, please? I mean, yeah, really. just everything that's, that's on great. there, it yeah, speaks. They, 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 yeah, there are, there are songs... There's songs that they did that were that are kind of timeless. Hmm. Like Al Wiedersehen is 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 a real. It's not grunge, but it's punk. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and 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 um, you know the same thing happened with uh, Twisted Sister with Dee Snider. What a you know I mean really uh, just terrible and the 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 he he was one way uh, when we were working together as soon as we were finished he wouldn't he never talked to me he would slag me and it, i mean I, it was just like unable to i think to give me any credit for their success because he had been working at it so long and then i come in and you know they 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 sell 5 million records <laughs> Of of uh, stay hungry mm-hmm. and and he gets pissed. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, Nikki Six has had has had bad things to say about about those records too. I mean, those records were made thirty five years ago, and they sounded different. I mean, we did not have the boom boxes. We did not have the you know the the, the kind of bottom. Uh, that, that that you hear today, right? Yeah, and Neil wouldn't stay in the groove if he had that bottom, right? And <laughs> and so uh, you know, and and they say, well, I don't know, he wasn't really, you know, our record sounded thin, and they were too poppy. And the fact is that labels called me because they didn't know what to do with a lot of their bands, and said Worman could. He can do this. He he can he can get unrecordable bands on the radio. You know, I had I made hit singles with these bands, and and then that got them on the radio, and then then they sold millions of records of, of albums. Mm. That's when singles were really important to album sales. Right. And so that's that's what I did. Um, tough. You know, you didn't like it. Well, you know, you could have used somebody else and and still been a a, a great album band. Mm. But that album that sold four million records, yeah, we, you wouldn't have done that. So, so yeah. that's the way I feel about it. Yeah. You know? and, and it was a lot harder to, to mix things back then. I mean, even listen, you listen to all the, I mean, 
I'm a huge Aerosmith fan, but if you go back and you listen to Wings or Rocks, I mean, the, yeah, the bass is there and, and the bass drum is there, but it, it's way down because that's where you yeah. had to mix it. It's, you know. Yeah. Rocks was such a great album. It was, you know, Jack was my, uh, one of my idols, not my mentors. Mm. I mean, I, I, you know, I used to, I, I went over and saw him working on Cheap Trick's first album. And the only reason I got in with, with T Trick as a producer was because he was doing Aerosmith's next album and didn't have time. But man, he was good. But yeah, you're right. We used to mix things. Um, you'd grab the uh, receptionist. No! You'd get, uh, you know, the, the, the guy who swept up the floor and, and you'd say, here's what, put your, do this then. And you'd make a pass at, at the song. You'd play the tape and everybody would be running around the board and making things. And, you know, Somebody'd say, "Shit, I missed, I missed that." Um, let's do it again. And you'd say, "Well, I don't know. Did everybody else get their cues?" You know. <laughs> and and if you only missed one thing out of like twenty that you had to do during the mix, you'd keep it. Yeah, yeah. You know. And then and then of course, all, you know, everything became became computerized, and after that, everything's perfect. <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. These days, it's perfect. That's definitely something <laughs> that people don't remember is that whole thing of literally all hands on deck. Everybody right. had a finger on a fader and and uh, yeah. just like rehearsing the whole thing. And it That's it was right. insane. It was, it was, and it was great. Yep. It's just great. I mean, you know, the, 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 when, when the computers came in and when 32 track came in and you could hook up one machine with another and... And, and have as many tracks as you wanted and then computer it, it became really difficult to mix and you'd, you'd just go right by it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, sometimes you'd, you'd, you'd mix until one o'clock in the morning and then you'd come back in the next day and listen to what you did, where, where you finished, and you'd just say, uh, we blew it, and you'd <laughs> put all the faders down and start over again. It was strange. Yeah. That, yeah. Didn't, that didn't happen in the early days. It's interesting that... Um, you know, I have done a lot of stuff on the studios and stuff on that, but I can remember sitting with friends and watching a movie that you were involved with, with the Rockstar soundtrack, and there's that yeah. whole scene where, you know, where he's singing and they kind of show the board and, and all of a sudden you just watch all the faders just do all their automation and everyone was like, wow, that's incredible. And I just would be like, I can remember when we all had to stand there, the whole band, everybody, and, and do that instead. And, and like right. they weren't getting why I was like, nah, that isn't as much fun as how we used to do it. But it, it's funny you yeah. talk about that and, and just that scene and everything, you know, you, you being involved in that soundtrack. Right. That, that, that was wonderful. Uh, that, that was really, it was very demanding, that, that project, because I was, I was dealing with two bands and having to cut the same songs with both bands and having one sound like they've been together for 10 years and the other one just a little worse, (laughs) And, and, and a little younger.
course, I was dealing with, um, you know, Jason Bonham and, and Zach Wilde, and mm. that was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> at, at least as far as how Jason and, and Zach were at that point in time, I would imagine it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that, but that was great. That was my, um, you know, my final project in L.A. And then I, I turned around really quickly and left. Yeah. Now you work with Jeff Pilson on that as well, correct? Yeah, he was uh, he was my team captain. He's uh, talented and a real uh, level-headed uh, guy, and and he's good with musicians and. He works, you know. He he kept them all together, and he was he was kind of the band leader. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was good. I needed him. Yeah. No wonder Mick Jones has him as the musical director for Foreign. We we had a sit down with him last summer. You know, just a great guy, and and everything you said, you know, it's it's pretty apparent. And everyone that talks about him is the same thing. They talk about how focused he is, but also how a kind of a manic, energetic, kind of happy guy he is as well. Right. Right. Yeah. He's very positive and uh, was a, a, a real standout. When when, when uh, he was in Dawkins, because uh, there were, uh, you know, George, George and, and Don were incredibly negative. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the only positive guy in there, really. Yeah, I would, I would imagine he spent a lot of time being the referee the whole time yeah, you guys absolutely. were doing tooth and nail. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I had a real tough time, real tough time with George <laughs> um, in, that, in that thing. You know, I wound up letting... Um, Michael Wagner produced, uh, mixed the record. I finished recording it, and then I, I, I bailed. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because I know that Michael had done Breaking, and then you came in and did Tooth and Nail, and then and he did the mixing, and then and then uh, he was back again for the other one. So uh, I guess you answered my question as to why you, you didn't do the follow-up with Under Lock and Key. Right. Um, it was a great band. George was a brilliant player. Hmm. Probably still is, but... You know, you can't, uh, I, I just can't, I can't be a friend to everybody and I can't make everyone like, like me. I mean, the, the thing that, that, that really set him off was he was doing a solo, he was doing a lead break, you know, and I pressed the talk back and I said, listen, you know, George, this is good. It's, it's really fast and, and it's really technically brilliant, but it's not taking me anywhere. Uh, you know, I'm not going from point A to point B. You're kind of sitting in one place and, you know, being flashy. Uh, if you could play something that's as brilliant as what you played in the song, Tooth and Nail, which was a great solo. I mm. mean, mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. And I said, that, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for. And he, he lost it, you know. He because he, I had told him he wasn't brilliant in that one situation. <laughs> so um, you know, I had I actually said, George, you're so angry. Would you you know? I, I think you might feel better if you could hit me. Do you want to hit me? And we got into it. <laughs> so, but he didn't. He probably would have would have floored me, but I, I you know, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Yeah, Tom, I got to ask you a um, question about that record. Um, the opening track, the instrumental, without warning. Um, was that actually part of the album sessions when, when they went in, or did you say, "Look, we need something at, in the beginning to go hit into tooth and nail, and then it'll just go bang"? You know, honestly, you. I don't remember. Okay, I got to tell you, I don't remember my uh, 
I remember a lot of stuff from back then, but I do not remember that. Uh, one of the problems is I, you know, I don't have a CD of that, and I so I don't listen to it um, much. Yeah. I hardly listen to anything I did. Um, I don't have any of my songs on the on my workout, you know, playlist. So, yeah. uh, so you know, these things are remain so far in the past that I. I can't help you with that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I would imagine, though, if you had it in your workout tape, a lot of times you'd be listening to it and being like, I want to fix that. I want to fix this. Yeah. I want to. <laughs> There's very little that I, you know, when I do listen yeah. to my to my stuff, um, which is a lot of fun because it's like, you know, it's like seeing a movie for the second time when you saw it for the first time five years ago. And, and you say, wow, yeah, that, this was really good. I, I remember this. Uh, um, there's not much that I don't like. I'm pretty happy with, with, with the stuff that I did back then. Mm, yeah. In fact, sometimes I'm surprised. That, that it was as good as I think it is. Yeah. I want to ask you, Tom, a little bit about Motley Crue. Um, yeah. You did the Shout at the Devil record, which I think is yeah. fantastic. And then they came out with Theodore Payne, and it's nowhere near as good. What, what was the biggest change in the band? Heroin. Oh, shit. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> Heroin. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, it, side, it sidetracked uh, uh, Nicky and Tommy. Yeah. And then, you know... Uh, they were they were much better uh, on Girls Girls Girls, and um, and we had a hit single, of course. Um, and then by the time they got to uh, Doctor Feelgood, they were completely clean. Yeah, you know, it was tough working with uh, you know a, a, a band, a party band, um, versus a, a SWAT team, and and, and uh, you know. Mick was always Mick. He was pretty steady. Uh, Vince was a game guy. He would come in and he put in his hours, but he didn't even consider uh, that he was in training, that he should be in training, that he was singing every day and needed to get at least a few hours sleep and, you know, lay off the party favors. It was tough, very, really tough. I mean, sometimes... He he'd come in and in, in the afternoon and sing until seven or eight for four or five hours, and we'd keep a line or two. That's it. That was it. It was tough, but he, you know, and then and then Nikki was was um, you know junked out, and and Tommy would would kind of do that from time to time. And they were also exhausted from the road, and they had to you know they did just come off the road. And they were, they had to hurry and write songs and then get on the road again, because um, because that's what bands did then. Mm, if you yeah. weren't on the road, you 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 know, if you, that's how they supported those album sales. Yeah, and did, did you even with the Theater of Pain album? Like, was it real a real struggle to even get like a home sweet home out of them, or was no, there that was that was pretty that was pretty easy. Okay, a uh, home sweet home. You know, Tommy did his thing, which was a great thing. Um, I didn't really know he could play the piano until he sat down to play the piano. And then I put in all sorts of, you know, I did my thing, which I did, you know, you can hear it on Every Rose Has Its Thorn. You know, you can hear it on other power ballads. 
um, I had a, not a formula, but there were things I liked a lot, like uh, synthesized string pads and, and, and common notes, that, pedal tones that would go through the verse and, you know, certain types of percussion and B3s, Hammond B3 organ. You could hear those on a lot of the songs that I did of, of that kind, you know, the, 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 the power ballad. And so, so you, you, you know, if you had a good basic song like Home Sweet Home or like Every Rose, um, it, was, it was pretty easy. Yeah. Now, the Girls, Girls, Girls album had um, a live co- uh, cover at the end of a Jailhouse Rock. Um, do, do you oh, which, I'm sorry, which, uh, there was a little beep on my phone. Which, sorry, the Girls, 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 the Mo- Motley Crue album? Yeah, it had a live cover of Jailhouse Rock at at the end of it. They put that on, um, you know, on the the second or third uh, version or print pressing or whatever. You know, they wait a few years and then they add bonus tracks. Okay, so I didn't have anything to do with that. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, so definitely. I mean, you were talking about the you know adding those particular elements and stuff. I started like to have like the hair go up my arms because I can just think about all the times I've used a lot of those elements for those same type of songs and stuff. Yeah. Now, do you think that you know? I think a lot of people point to "Home Sweet Home" as kind of almost being the the genesis of the power ballad as a hit single. Would you agree with that? You know, I don't remember what else had been played. At that time, was that actually before, like, like, I want to know what love is? Um, It's around that time. I don't know. You know, look at Dream On. I I think Dream On was the genesis of the power ballad. I I think about when that Home Sweet Home came out, just the reaction it had. And maybe part of it was driven by MTV as well, and the, the visual of it is, you know, adding to it. But it seemed like after that, there was just so many bands that kind of took that template of that really piano thing at the beginning and then just you know the rest of like that heaviness part of it um i think that home sweet home maintains when you talk about dream on that it was all that kind of mid-tempo and and the later power ballads also went with the mid-tempo as the ballady part and then a much heavier faster part on the on the heavy side of it as opposed to a a mid-tempo throughout it so they changed a little bit but it seemed like People after Home Street Home, they kind of were like, ooh, that's what's going to get us massive radio play. That's what's going right. to hook everybody in. Hey, this is Lena Ford. You are listening to Focus on Metal. Well, I think that what you're referring to uh, is the, the consciousness, the, you know, the realization that, hey, power ballads uh, sell two million records hmm. if, you know, if, if they get into the top ten. And, and so... Basically, every, almost every hard rock album by a hard rock band had one ballad. Hmm. And that's where they put their hopes on airplay because that was basically the only way for a while that you could get a hard rock band on AM radio. Right. And that was what it was all about, getting on AM radio. I mean, you know, in the 60s, there were, there were bands that simply were never played on AM radio, huge bands hmm. who, who would never get, uh, until, uh, until FM, you know, because of FM stereo, right. until the, the 70s, I, I don't, you know, they, they just didn't make it. Right, um, yeah. And AM play meant millions <laughs> of sales. Uh, FM was just, um, you know, street credibility. 
Hmm. You know, and I can even remember some of that changeover. So you're from the Boston area, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can probably remember like WRKO was like the station. Everyone listened to WRKO. Well, you're much younger. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I was in Boston, it was Arnie Woo Woo Ginsburg uh, and Joe Smith mm. on WILD and WMEX. MEX was the station. Yeah. And then, of course, then you started to have, you know, the BCN and then, yeah, you know, BCN. later on in the late 70s, WCOZ and, and stations like that that really were playing everything from everybody. Yeah, especially BCN. That was a really... That was a great development for Boston. Oh yeah, and, you know, and played to um, you know to all all those students that were there. I mean, but Boston was uh, I don't know pretty uh, pretty provincial when I was there. <laughs> it just wasn't a the uh, kind of um, exploratory uh, adventurous uh, city. It was pretty conservative. You know, I never saw a rock and roll show until I got to New York. I went to Columbia, and uh, rock and roll shows were banned in Boston. Mm. They were not allowed um, until, I don't know, I guess until after I left. The first concert I ever saw in my life was the Beatles at Carnegie Hall. Mm. You know, and, and meanwhile, everybody else in all the big cities in the country, you know, they... All through my high school years, they were so they were going to shows and seeing big bands, and I I, had, I didn't even know what a what a rock and roll show was about. Yeah, I mean, really, in Boston, it wasn't you know all you had was the Tea Party, you know, really, which is you're talking sixty eight, sixty nine at that point for the Tea Party. Right, yeah. it was after I I was almost out of you know, I joined CBS in in, in nineteen seventy. Yeah. So so Tom. Just uh, just to get back here to um, you know some of the material you did in the eighties when you done Motley Crue docking and you know you done Stay Hungry and then they offered you Poison did you did it ever enter into your mind that I'm going to get pigeonholed as a producer here to it was to too some, late to, okay <laughs> so we, we, did it ever enter into, into your mind at all doing any of the previous ones yeah I was really happy with my association with Motley Crue. It was um, kind of the, you know, kind of a high point in my career that, that I had, I was able to produce uh, a few records by, and, make, and make a band so big, help make a band so big, um, because Motley was, you know, they didn't do much on their first album. I think they sold like 60,000 records initially. And then Shout Out the Devil was such a big hit. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I, yeah, I felt really, really uh, good about that. And the Twisted Sister thing, you know, it, it was just a, a, an accident. Um, they didn't want me to, uh, I don't think they wanted me to produce the record. I think they, I can't remember who they wanted to produce the record, but the president of Atlantic Records, Doug Morris, called me and said, you're the only guy who can make a hit with this band. Uh, I, need you to, I need you to do a record for me. And, and when, when a label president calls you, 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 you don't refuse. Mm. So, you know, he said, uh, you make a good record, I guarantee you, I'll, you know, we'll promote it, we'll back it, we'll support it. So I did that. And then Poison wanted Paul and, and uh, Gene uh, of KISS to produce them. <laughs> and uh, it was... It was Capital and uh, and their manager who said not a chance, mm. and, and so they got me, um, 
you know, that's just the way it went. And then, you know, at that point I got burnt out after Poison. I did a few reasonable projects, but that was basically it. And, and also that was the late 80s. And music changed drastically yeah. right around 1989. I think uh, Nevermind was done in 90. 1991, yeah. 99, yeah. And once once that was out, uh, I was uh, I was out of there. Yeah. The, the, the other record, Tom, I just want to ask you about is um, the Striper one you did. Um, ah, yeah. Yeah, Against the Law. at the time they were trying to change their image a little bit to become more so-called right. mainstream do you have any memories of recording that album loved it loved those guys yeah yeah they were great guys i mean each each one of them um oz and 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 michael um i think michael lives on the cape now yeah he does he does yeah yeah and I, i'm not sure what he does but you know they they you know, for 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 a Christian band, or for one a band that was a Christian band, they were so non, not in your face, not preaching, not. They were just good people. I really enjoyed them, and I was really, I was kind of felt bad that we couldn't we couldn't make a hit record. With yeah, the, the, I've seen them live a couple of times, and Michael is still a great singer, and their vocal harmonies are incredible. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they're still. I mean, they're still putting fun. stuff out too. And we've had we've had Michael on the show twice, and uh -huh. he's he's an absolute joy to talk to. Every time we have a great time talking to him, whether it's before the interview or even after yeah. the interview, it's yeah. He's always just like the same great down to earth guy. Absolutely, yeah. They're they're just good good guys. Since you were doing this for so long, and you came out of dealing with these bands that were you know 
in the 70s, early 80s, and a lot of those bands had a history and a craft behind them. And then you went into the, the you know the mid to late 80s, where there seemed to be a lot more bands that came together quickly and they all kind of had this idea of you know we'll write 10 songs get signed get famous get rich type of thing and did that kind of also play out with how you had to manage these bands in the studio as well between the the guys that really were in it for the long haul to the guys who were kind of in it for the short hit well i don't think i came across too many of those bands really Mm. if i can think back i mean i you know my late 80s early 90s bands there was one there were a couple of Geffen records Pariah was one and Graveyard Train was one I did Lita Ford Um, Mm -hmm. these were these were all serious musicians they didn't do that well some of them some did a little better Um, LA Guns was in there Kicks Mm -hmm. they were all lifers there you know there, there were no flash in the pans um, I don't think. I don't think. Yeah, yeah the, the Kicks guys are—they're still out there. I think they're going to start recording a new album soon. Yeah, they're still, still out there. Yeah. yeah, Steve. And that was definitely you know when you did that one. I think that was probably one of their biggest releases that they had as well. And it was—it seemed to be definitely kind of a more radio-friendly sound overall yeah. and stuff. And yeah, do you, well, what do you remember about making that one? Well, um, it was tough. Um, everybody was great. Uh, Donnie's very difficult. The, you know that he's the leader of the band and the, and the bass player, and he, he kind of thinks everyone's out to get him. Um, it was very difficult to work with him, and it was easy to work with everybody else. Uh, I liked the record very much, and uh, I liked the songs. I liked them, and I loved um, Brian mm. uh, Forsyth, uh, the guitar player. He was excellent and extremely pleasant. But um, the fact is, that you mentioned that, that you thought it was their biggest record. Every band I worked with, um, I, I made their biggest record, except for Dr. Feelgood with Molly Crew, who was a little bigger than Girls, Girls, Girls. <laughs> I think that did okay as well, Tom. <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah, but every, every uh, other band, I mean, um, you know, Ted and, and Cheap Trick and Molly Hatchet, Mm-hmm. And Poison, and Twisted Sister, and um, who else? You know, Kicks, L.A. Guns, all of them. Yeah, and, that's true. You know, when 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 I when I stopped working with them, um, they didn't do as well. Yeah, um, which is a you know kind of a, a, an egotistical thing to say, but it's a, it's a fact, and I, that I was proud of that. Yeah, no, there there is one thing, Tom. That's sticks out to me when I'm looking through your discography. Nearly all the bands you work with are U.S. bands. Do you have any regret about never working with any bands from, say, Europe or somewhere else in the world? Well, actually, I did one album with Crocus. Uh, and, and they were basically uh, known as a Swiss band. Mark Storacci, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and, and Fernando. Mm. Uh, there, were, there were three of them, I think, that were, that were uh, not American. Mm-hmm. No, I... I I, I didn't, I, I always wanted, well, there were a lot of British bands that I wanted to work with. I mean, I would have, you know, cut off my leg to work with The Who. Um, but that's, that was just, just not to be. I mean, the, the timing was wrong, and, you know, The Who were my, probably my favorite band of, uh, you know, of all time. Um, and talking about power ballads, you know, a lot of the stuff on Who's Next was 
started off very quietly acoustic and then exploded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that was, those were good examples and probably big influences. But no, um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't, uh, uh, I, I thought most of the foreign bands um, that were worth working uh, for or producing uh, had come before my time. I mean, you know, in the 60s. Yeah. God, so many. <laughs> you know, the British invasion in the space of four years from like 64 to 68 produced about 30 really significant rock acts. Yeah. And they had a quarter of, of the population of, of the U.S. They had about 50 million people mm. and, and versus our 200 million. And in that same period of four years, we developed about eight, maybe ten hit, hit, hit acts in the United States. It was, it was really impressive what they did. <laughs> so many great bands, so much creativity, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think part of it, too, though, is that I think a lot of those bands, if you go back and you look at the history of them, is I think one difference is that they seem to be all very deeply rooted in a lot of music that, you know, a lot of times some of these U.S. bands, they might know kind of what they listen to and maybe a half a generation back. But, you know, you talk to someone like Pete Townsend and he starts talking about all the Dixieland stuff and, and big band stuff and stuff like Ackerbilk and just all kinds of stuff right. that's out there. And 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 there's Keith there's Keith's knowledge of uh, blues, mm. which is extensive to say the least. Um, and the Beatles had a lot of influences, a lot of Motown, a lot of you know the Beach Boys. You know, it's it's true. Um, you know, the the Stones. Uh, Kind of reintroduced America to to, to American blues. Hmm. They they reinterpreted blues for white people. Yeah, I think that's an important point too. That here we are having this pure American music that's taking place in America, and the greater portion of the country's never heard it. But it takes a bunch of white guys over in England buying right. what, what at the time was called race yeah. records and reintroducing them to us. Right, and they were they were heavily into them and. And so many of them were art school students for some, mm. for some unknown reason. I don't know. I guess they, 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 they went to art school because they, that's where you went if you maybe couldn't get into Oxford or Cambridge or, or didn't have the money to go, to go somewhere else. Uh, but they all went for this, and they all did really well at it, and it was their, their escape from you know, those old industrial town mm. and they knew it i mean you, you talk about people like like keith and brian jones and pete townsend i mean they were they were encyclopedia uh you yeah. know of all this stuff it's amazing i was lucky uh when i worked at epic records at you know at cbs in the early 70s i was assigned all the british acts that were on our roster and um so that would take me over to london two or three times a year and Jeff Beck was one, you know, an Argent, mm. um, and what what you know, kind of guys who used to be in the Zombies and 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 uh, uh, the Yardbirds uh, and Dave Clark Five. <laughs> I mean, and and the Hollies. I yeah. mean, it, it, it was really fascinating uh, to be over there and see that that music scene. And and I got a, actually got to go into. Uh, 
Abbey Road. Oh, nice. <laughs> which, was, which was really great. And, I, and, and uh, you know, I, I worked, uh, did a couple of things with George Martin over at Air London Studios, his studio. And, uh, it was great. Yeah. It was just great. Yeah. So going into Abbey Road, were you kind of amazed at, at the equipment they had in there and kind of being like, oh, my God, like all those albums got made on... Yeah. this equipment and because you expect oh, yeah. to see some amazing stuff in there and it's kind of like really this is what they no, got i, I, I kind of knew about that yeah uh, you know and and we lived ken scott lived on our street in uh in la oh okay uh, so eventually uh, i understood what that was all about uh but, but I, this is before that mm. you know a lot of studios uh that that i had been in you know in this country had um had stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, that they that they kept. Most recording studios didn't just trade up, um, and some some really uh, put a huge value on a vintage gear, mm-hmm. um, and still do. You know, uh, guys like um, um, why can't I remember his name? My favorite uh, musician in the world right now. Um, <laughs> you know, Foo's the Foo Fighters. Oh, oh Dave Grohl. Yeah, yeah, Grohl. Yeah, I mean, he has a, a great reverence for all that stuff. Yeah, and and it and it's it's nice to hear bands uh, uh, still record uh, on gear like that and and actually play their instruments in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the cool thing with like like you know the Abbey Road with any of the EMI studios is the fact that they had a lot of homegrown gear. You know, stuff that someone back there at EMI figured out how to make this really cool compressor. And the only place in the world it was was in that studio. And that, and that was right. kind of unique right. about them. It was. And there were a lot of brilliant British producers and engineers. I mean, mm. Glenn Johns and Andy Johns, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the kind of, the kind of things they, they uh, developed and, and, and did and could do, um, you know, and Ken, uh, Ken Scott and yeah. Gus Dudgeon and so many. Tom, did you get a chance to build up on your relationship with all these other producers over the years? To, to, to what on my relationship? Did you get a chance to build any sort of a relationship oh, with any of them? No, we didn't. We were, you know, I think I knew a lot of them. Yeah. Um, especially in L.A. Uh, but the deal is that um, most of us were too busy. If I was between projects, uh, somebody else would be in the studio, and you don't want to hang out in, the, in, in somebody else's session for too long. Yeah. Because um, you know what it's like when people are in there looking over your shoulder and maybe being judgmental. And, you know, I, I had, a, uh, I, I had some, some producers who, who, were, who were, were very uh, influential, I think, um, to, uh, for me, but we didn't hang out. Okay. Uh, Ken and I did quite a bit, um, but we were, as I said, we we were, we lived in the studio. Mm. We really lived in the studio. Um, we 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 didn't come home for dinner. We you 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 get to, to work at noon and you come home at one or two in, in the morning. Yeah, you know, and 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 you you know when you were tracking, doing basic tracks, you worked right through the weekends, and I don't know. So, so, so the answer is not really. Okay. <laughs> so, with all your time, you know, doing production, was there any like one engineer that kind of stood out as the guy you really loved to work with? Yeah, yeah, the first one, uh, 
Gary Ladinsky, and the last one, Eddie Delena. Well, actually, there were three. Um, I had these three for a long time each. Gary Ladinsky was one that I just found by interviewing guys on the phone before we went out to do the first Cheap Trick record in L.A. I'd never recorded in L.A., so I had to find an engineer. Hmm. Um, I can't engineer my way out of a paper bag. <laughs> you know, I'm ter- terrible technically. So uh, my engineer was responsible for, you know, translating all my ideas into sound. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and so Gary was great. And then um, you know, he went into the equipment rental business, and uh, and I found Dwayne Barron, who was um, he's a Canadian who came down, and, and uh, he did all the most of the Motley stuff with me, and then um, and then the things after that, um, and then um, Eddie Delena. Uh, who who was my last engineer, and I felt bad because we never really made any big hits together. We had a great time, though. Um, great sense of humor, great guy, uh, easy to work with, very diligent. It's so important to have a good engineer. Mm. I mean, you know, Gary and I made 16 records together. Wow. That, that was a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, 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 we took the the record plant truck out to Ann Arbor, Michigan to do Brownsville Station's last record. And, you know, we had some great, some great experiences. Yeah. A lot of fun. And, and, and that's when we were making hit after hit after hit. Um, at one point we had three records in the, in the top, in the billboard top 40, wow. three albums, different <laughs> albums. God, it was great. <laughs> it's so great <laughs> you know and and then those times I was so lucky to 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 be able to do what exactly what I wanted to do uh such a you know it's like wouldn't it be great to be able to help craft the records that that you know everybody teenage teenagers all over the country loved yeah. Yeah. Got, you know, I always used to think about teenage guys on a Friday night getting ready to go out on a date and listening to the stuff that we did because it would, you know, it would get them going, it would pump them up, it would whatever, you know, or, or driving in cars and listening to, uh, you know, to stuff that we did.
it was, it, you know, to me, rock and roll, you know, went from a, a kind of a joke fad when I in the fifties when I first got into it, to to being a real serious uh, integral part of, of American culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. So I I, I kind of got got proud over the years. Kind of put a smile on my face the way that you started off answering that question too because it could tell just by the way you went into it how much appreciation you had for the engineer and that was, you know, sometimes you don't always hear that or these guys kind of oh, kind of yeah. get left behind but I could just tell but the, right off the way you started answering that question just yeah. how much, you know, that you had with these guys. I loved I, uh, I loved them. I depended on them. Yeah. Really depended on them. You know, there are so many guys who became producers who started off as engineers? Keith, Keith Olson did. Ken Scott did. Um, you know, Ron Nevison, um, Val Garay, uh, so many. Andy Johns and, mm. and Glenn John. They're, you know, they became these fabulous producers. And today, I don't think there's a producer working who 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 isn't an engineer. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the sound became pretty much as important if not more important than, than you know, the, the material, um, you know, in, in the 90s. Yeah. Do you think also the fact that you not being an engineer and knowing, hey, I'm not an engineer, I just, I'm the producer, did that kind of help with that relationship as opposed to having, you know, an engineer who's trying to make a sound and a producer who's also been an engineer that was going, well, I think we should use yeah. this mic and do this. And there were yeah. two different slates that work a lot better for you. I think it did. Yeah. I, I really do, and 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 especially, uh, you know, because I would say something. I'd say, "Listen, I want, um, I want this note. I want this, and and I want the, you know, I want the Leslie more distorted, and I want. I, we we got to have something underneath it. We got to have a bottom to it, and then I want this kind of, you know, reverb or 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 this kind of chorus or whatever, mm. and and he'd do it. And I and I I turn to him and say, God, that's good. that's great, you know. Thank you, thank you for doing that yeah. because you know if he could deliver the sound that I wanted, I made, it just made me look good, yeah. you know. And, and it and it was so great because I you know you work with I've worked with engineers uh, in the beginning who were good, but they just didn't do what you know they weren't able to deliver what I what I wanted. Maybe I got a little better at describing it too. Yeah. So, so Tom, how did you feel about? Um, I think you co-produced a few records. How did you feel about having a, another producer in with you in the studio? Not good. Not good. Not good. I think the the only the, the only real co-producing I did was well. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I I didn't feel so good about um, um, having another producer on the Ted Nugent sessions. Okay. Um, I I kind of took over there. Um, and I liked Lou, but I, he didn't share my feel hmm. for rock and roll uh, in in many areas of the music. Um, he was uh, somewhat of you know he was a, a, a producer who, who would sit in the back of the studio and kind of chime in now and then. Um, but uh, later on, I did co-producing with my engineer Dwayne. And and um, a, a third guy named John Perdell, who unfortunately passed away young, and and he um, he and Dwayne did uh, half the Kicks album. He they did some of the L.A. Guns album, and um, 
they were engineers who were on the way up who would eventually become producers and and um, that i was I was really happy to be involved in their growth and their development as um, as eventual producers yeah, the impression we get we seem to be getting from all the producers we're talking to is that they they, they were mentored by someone or that they mentored someone who's now famous right. So right. We, we well, I, you know, my fa- the famous part, I don't know. I was definitely influenced yeah. by guys. Um, you know, really, I had... Uh, Glenn Johns was, to me, just the... Uh, I wanted to... That's the kind of producer I wanted to be because I remember listening to uh, the Eagles' first album and to Who's Next uh, almost at the same time and saying, who who is this guy who could produce these two records that are so infinitely far apart, you know, in, in style and in, 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 in sound and everything. I mean, this, this is, this guy's good. Of course, now you, you look back and you find out how much that the Glenn Johns and the Eagles didn't really see eye to eye on things. No, and, they didn't. That's right. Yeah. Where, where, so, where did we read that? Oh, it was it in the, um, in the, in the documentary. They made it very clear in the documentary. Yeah. 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 So when you were, when you saw that, were you kind of thinking, "Hey, wait a minute, I could have done that." <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. I mean, you know, it, it's hard. Mm. It's really hard. I I would have been happy to to to, to work. You know, I always used to say that um, people would say, "Oh, you oh you you produce Motley Crue," and and it would be kind of a lightweight thing uh, because they weren't Motley Crue fans. Mm but they didn't understand how difficult it was to make a hit record with a band that, like Motley Crue, uh, who are a good band, but no Eagles, you know. I mean, the Eagles are, like, you know, top of the heap uh, in terms of, uh, of work attitude and, and, uh, and uh, creativity and, and, and musicianship. I mean, they're, they're, like, perfect. If I could have produced the Eagles, I always said that I, I could have slept through those sessions and still come up with a hit. <laughs> yeah. So, so Thomas, if someone wants to say, uh, can you point me to one album that you did that you're most proud of, which one would you pick? Probably Heaven Tonight, Cheap Trick. Okay, nice. Yeah, that or Dream Police. Okay, mm-hmm. Cheap Trick all the way. Very happy with, uh, with uh, the ideas that I, you know, my contribution. Very happy and very happy with the band. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, Dream Police is one of those albums that's it's so dense and, and layered, and there's so many things going on in there, and, and just yeah. even for yeah. for pop, it's just amazing. The stuff that Tom was doing on the bass in that album, it's oh, yeah. it's an amazing album. Yeah, it's an amazing band. I'm I'm really sorry that we uh, that we we you know we really drifted apart. Uh, just loved it. That was that was the most fun I ever had. In, mm. in a recording studio, we used to just tear through those. We 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 finish we finished Dream Police in thirty days from <laughs> the first note to final mix. That's insane. <laughs> that was it, at that point. Yeah, yeah. We I mean bands used to spend two three months in the studio. Yeah, I mean I, mean, I just think of being in bands and covering songs off of that album and how long uh-huh. it would take us to just learn that song enough to present it in public and right and now you're telling me that it took 30 days to, to record right. that whole thing that right there is just it like blows my mind yeah well the, the 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 sad thing about that was that we were we were rushed to do it because they had to go on the road hmm. 
And then it sat on the shelf for eight months because of Budokan. Mm. You know, uh, the live at Budokan record took off, and I, I had been down in, in Florida finishing the last album I did with Ted, which was called Weekend Warriors, yeah. which wasn't in my, you know, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't one of his better records. But I got a call uh, from my boss, said, I want you to go to Tokyo. We're going to record, <laughs> we're going to record Cheap Trick live at, at Budokan. And, and I said, I can't, I, I, I can't leave Ted here uh, and just bail. So I missed out on on, on that. <laughs> really a shame. I always regretted that. Yeah. But but that's when, you know, they, they, they wanted to rush Dream Police out, and then they said, wait a minute. <laughs> that was that. Wow. So, you know, you know, we go back and look at, like, Molly Crew, because we've talked a lot about them, and obviously the, the difference between the initial album to, to Shout is really, really dramatic in overall sound and presentation, you know, even in the songwriting. Now, did they come in with a lot of that material already, or was it kind of more of a kind of written-in-the-studio collaboration? I think it was pretty pretty prepared, hmm. uh, from what I remember. Hmm. Um, the, uh, Nicky was very good at, at you know, at songwriting. He, you know, I, I wasn't always thrilled with his lyrics but his music was, was was really good especially as a bass player for him to write that stuff and Mick he and Mick Mick really provided the structure for a lot of those songs I the only thing I did with with Mick was I mean he had his solos he had his lead breaks uh, pretty much arranged and, and fine-tuned uh, and uh, I served as you know quality control I helped him make them sound good but the only thing I did for him was to tell him where to fill, mm. you know, to put in fills between vocal lines and and stuff like that. And and Tommy was a very good, high quality drummer. Mm-hmm. These guys, you know, they they weren't um, they improved a, a tremendous amount between Shout and Girls, Girls, Girls. He didn't, um, Nicky didn't play that well on Shout. Uh, and he developed into, into a very a very competent bass player. Mm. Yeah, they, you know, they all um, grew by being you know on the road three hundred days a year. Sure. Yeah, and I imagine that he must have had a pretty good musical relationship with Mick as well because he was again, one of these guys that had a much deeper dive into music. I mean, coming out of stuff like bebop deluxe and things like that that he was bringing to the table, kind of sneakily and you know into that genre of music well it was hard it was hard to know uh to get to get mick mick and i uh he was definitely my favorite mm. uh, we got along very well and uh, very well in the studio and he was i think he was uh grateful for what i helped him out with uh whatever my contribution was he appreciated it and i loved the way he played i loved uh you know i think he's an under appreciated um uh, guitar player yeah um and uh you know we we had a we had a really good time hmm. and he finally he finally got a, a a good sound i mean my favorite mick mars guitar sound is is the dream police sound is the girls 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 i'm sorry not dream police is the girls 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 sound mm-hmm. 
um, that you know, um, all the Motley Crue diehard fans seem to prefer the Shout at the Devil sound, <laughs> which, which I which I thought was was pretty raunchy, and I guess raunch is what is what they like. Yeah, but I think Girls has a little bit more of, of the mids that are in there. It's got a, I think it has more of a presence, and it it kind of just kind of sits in there a little bit better yeah. than it does on Shout. Well, he got a good. Uh, we had a good tech, a good guitar tech then. Yeah, he, you know he was the best, and so he could help. Uh, the techs were really important. Uh, guitar techs, uh, drum techs, they, they they'd help you dial in uh, sounds that you were after. Um, better than the or more effectively than the musician could yeah you know they knew the musician's equipment far better than the musician <laughs> now i know that like um you know like george lynch always kind of had the reputation of he'd come in with you know whatever gear he could kind of beg borrow or steal he was never really consistent with what he showed up with and stuff and you know across most of the bands you work with did a lot of them kind of rely on other things being in the studio available or were they more often going to bring in mostly their own rig and maybe add a little bit here or there to it? Well, they, they, they brought in mostly their own, their own stuff. Um, they would be happy to experiment with mm. stuff. George had a very um, uh, specific sound. Yeah. I loved, loved his sound. So, so he did have that. I don't think he used too many gimmicks. But, um, I don't know, guitar players, you know, the, the, the better the guitar player, as they got better and better, um, uh, right up to the uh, studio guys, the, the pros, mm. um, they would come in with, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen it. These, they'd come in with these huge, like boards. Yeah, the Bradshaw with, rigs with, <laughs> with pedals and things um, screwed into them, mm -hmm. and they'd put these down, and and these guys would play their parts, and and they'd they'd have like eight different pedals. Uh, under their under their feet to choose from, they were uh, very specific. Uh, yeah. They didn't, you know, the, the 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 more professional you were, the 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 more um, I don't know complete your your rig was. You didn't just say, "Oh, you know, I wish I had this," or "Wow, I, I, that sounds good. I'd like to use that." Yeah, these guys knew exactly where they were going and and what and what they were doing.
so Tom, did you ever feel any pressure to bring in um, a musician to play parts on an album who actually wasn't a member of the band? Um, I, I, I was very uh, serious about never doing that. Okay. I did it twice, uh, both times with Cheap Trick, because Rick was a kind of a zany stylist and, and, and had a way of playing that was almost humorous mm-hmm. and tricky and, and quirky. And there were a couple of songs, like uh, the studio version of I Want You to Want Me, which was like a, a little dance hall tune and, mm-hmm. and required um, an approach uh, when it came to the guitar that I didn't think was working. So I got a studio guy to come in and play that the lead guitar for that song, and then I got Steve Lukather to come in and play on Voices, a, call, a song called Voices, mm. and he was really good, because sometimes I would just, I'd ask Rick if he could play a certain way, and he didn't want to, mm. or, or he preferred not to, and, uh, you know, I remember asking him one time, I, I really would like to hear you play this solo as if you were kind of a big rock star with long flowing hair you know uh, uh, playing in, in front of uh, you know 10,000 people mm-hmm. just wail and and uh, it didn't work <laughs> so, so occasionally I'd, I'd bring in a person I uh, one other time I brought in Mickey uh, Raphael uh, to play some harmonica on Poison's record Okay. He was Willie Nelson's um, harmonica player, hmm. and he was great. Um, there was some stuff that Brett just couldn't quite deliver, but we we'd give them credit. You know, we wouldn't just bring in a ringer and and pretend that he was in the band. Yeah, it's just that you have this mystique. I think that's eighties. A lot of eighties bands. Um, they didn't play on certain records, and every, every producer that comes on, I feel compelled to ask them, did they actually bring in any guys to play instead of any of the band members? So it's, yeah, I'm actually finding out that it's not as widespread as a lot of people think it is. Right, right. Because you surely you want to get the guys that are in the band to play everything on the album. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, during the Poison record, uh, Ricky Ricky Rocket had a real hard time with one specific fill. He just couldn't get it. He couldn't hear it. And I called Bunny, uh, Bunny Carlos from mm-hmm. Cheap Trick, and, and he was in town. And he actually came in to the rehearsal and sat down with Ricky and taught him how to play this fill. And it was that was great. So I, I wouldn't. We didn't hire, you know, a, a studio drummer to come in. Yeah. So, so Tom, just a final question from me. Um, I asked Mike Fraser this question as well. Was there any album that he worked on that he thought would have been a lot bigger than it actually became? Was there any oh. any one for you? Oh man, you opened up a can of worms. <laughs> uh, well, there were two. Actually, there were two. I signed two bands from Atlanta one called The Producers and one called Mother's Finest. Um, They were both bands that I held in great esteem. They were fantastic uh, live and in the studio, and they're both cult bands. Mm -hmm. They have followings and, and, and they have chat rooms and they have stuff like that. But, man, I thought Mother's Finest was a huge home run. And the producers were, um, 
were incredible. And every, when I used to be on the radio, and whenever I would play the producers, people yeah. would constantly call in and go, "Who the hell is that band?" They just right. like it was. It was, and I have them on vinyl. But they they used to always get an instant reaction whenever I played them. Yeah, and 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 they were the first band on Portrait Records, which was a new label, a subsidiary kind of of, of Epic. Mm. And I thought they booted the record. They, you know, you don't you don't want to blame the record company for a stiff, but in this case, I I I, I don't think they did a good job. And I don't think they, that Epic did a good job with Mother's Finest. Mm. Um, the first Mother's Finest record, this is a band that was predominantly uh, black. Um, you know, they, they had um, this couple who, uh, who sang, and then they, they had uh, Wizard, the bass player for, um, you know, he, he's, on, he, he's in Stevie Nicks' band now. And their favorite, um, they had a white guitar player and a white drummer. But their favorite band was Zeppelin, and 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 so they did funk metal, and they, and they were the first one. They were way before Living Color, and God, it was good. Anyway, I I I, I just loved those guys, and I was terribly disappointed in myself, and, and you know, and in in the record company, and I felt so bad for the bands because they were just great. That's the nature of the music business. Yeah. Well, I think definitely the producers probably what killed them was that with MTV and even though they were very energetic and all of that but I think a lot of just image wise it was kind of like uh, kind of overweight white guys nah, it's not working and I think that's I think the image is what probably did them in well only one of them was overweight yeah you know uh, but he was the lead Kyle, singer wasn't he no Kyle was really good looking like a matinee idol um, it was the um the keyboard player. That's right. You're right. It was. Yeah. He was bald and yep. and yep. kind of porky. Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Wayne famous. Uh, they were great though. Mm -hmm. They were just so good, and they and they were great songwriters. Yeah. I mean, that was that was my cup of tea. That power pop. God, that was good. Anyway, <laughs> I I urge everybody to try to find, go on YouTube and listen to the producers. Listen to, what's he got. And she, Sheila, and anything you can find on there that that, that was recorded, you know, that, that's from the record. Yeah. So you're kicking back in Lennox, and you've been having a great time being the innkeeper. Is there anything out there that would cause you to want to go, geez, you know what, I really want to produce again? Or are you pretty much, yeah, I'm happy, I, I did it, I've been there, done that, and now I've come yeah. in my new life? Yeah, that's about it. I, yeah. I, I, did, uh, I did as much as I wanted. Hmm. Uh, and I got the opportunity to do exactly what I wanted in life. Um, hardly anybody gets that opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, most people even dislike their jobs. I, not only did I like my job, I, I, I just loved it. Yeah. I couldn't believe that, that people would pay me to do this. Um, what, a, what a great life and a, and a lucky life, you know. I, I just did three records a year and I took time off and I made my own schedule and God, I don't know. It, it was great. This is great. So I do not hanker to return to the studio. <laughs> I really don't. Um, if, if, you know, the Foo Fighters are the only band I've heard since 1990 that I w would really, really enjoy working with. Mm -hmm. um, as long as you get to work in the studio with the Neve console, right? Right. <laughs> that would be great. That would be just great. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, it's been great. We really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. And I know I had shown my wife some of the pictures of the uh, of Stonover Farm, and she was kind of had that look in her eye, which means that who knows, maybe I'll be taking a trip out there and uh, being your guest sometime in the future. But uh, now that'd be great. I mean, I you know I make a, a well known killer omelet called the Tomlet, awesome. and and it's uh, you know sautéed mushrooms and herbed local goat cheese. Um, we you know. It's, it's 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 great here. You'd like it here. You got all your uh, gold and platinum discs hanging up there somewhere, Tom? No, they're in the attic. Oh, okay. Uh, what I what I do have in in, in my office, where where people uh, um, you know m- frequently come to to settle their bill, is I, I you know I, I have these albums, all the albums that I did that they would be likely to recognize. Mm, okay. Um, I've got them uh, around the ceiling. Uh, there's about I don't know 18 of them. Uh, you know, they're they're real album covers. In uh, was, um, a couple of years ago, that uh, what is it? Restoration Hardware came out with uh, with black frames that uh-huh. were for for albums. Yep. So I I bought a bunch and, and did that and okay. and that and that's fun. And there are a few photographs around. There's a private Pete Townsend photo collection that I have and. Um, it's it's just enough to to have people uh, I- interested, but no, no, it would be silly, um, you know, because I, I, actually there are twenty three um, gold and platinum records, and I think that's over the top. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll take some of them off you, Tom. I'll hang them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but thank you. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. All right, Tom. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. All right, metalheads. That'll do it for this week of Focus on Metal. Definitely been a long one. Almost two hours of nothing but 100% Tom Warman. Definitely been kind of a way back machine episode for me. That's for damn sure. But I hope you guys liked it nonetheless. Next week, we'll be swinging our attention back to more of the modern metal. I'm thinking I might have someone from the band Nightmare on. Not sure yet, but I think that's what we have lined up. Who knows? Things could change in the next seven days. But that's my story right now. Just once again, a reminder, our track of the week was from the band Gun Barrel. Catch up with them at gunbarrel.de or at facebook.com slash gun barrel and as i said let them know you heard them right here on focus on metal great new album out on massacre records called damage dancer in the meantime till you hear from us again keep up with everything going on with us on twitter and facebook as well as focus on metal.blogspot.com and focusonmetal.net, our main website. And of course, you can always keep up with the show at thecastironring.com. There's always kick-ass stuff to be found over at castironring.com, put on by all of our fellow podcasters. I'll tell you, the guys at Wikimetal, last one they put out had Udo Dirk Schneider from, of course, UDO. The episode before that, they had Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. I mean, how much cooler can you get than that? Wikimetal is always bringing in the great guests. Occasionally you have a week when it's all in Portuguese. They don't post on the ring. But when they do, I must say they do have some of the best guests in the podcast industry. The last one up from uh, Iron City Rocks when I was recording this, John had on Lincoln Park's Brad Delson. I know he's always a cool interview and he's a real kind of gear guy as well. So uh, if you like Lincoln Park, you like all the stuff that Brad does, definitely check out the latest episode of Iron City Rocks with John Caddick, a special guest. 
Brad Delson. And of course, I would always urge you to check out Radioactive Metal. Radioactive Metal is the show that Focus on Metal was kind of birthed out of. And uh, Rock and the gang over at Radioactive Metal always have great stuff. The latest episode they had out at the time I'm recording this called it Verb the Noun. Great discussion about what is heavy metal. You know, I just realized I am actually wearing my Radioactive Metal t-shirt as I'm recording this. Of course, we have Mars Attacks on there. Last one that Victor had put up was with Monty Pittman. Of course, you guys know him. Longtime record guy, Monty Pittman. Of course, from the UK is the Weird Ways show. They've always got some really cool music, cool stuff going on there. It just kick-ass stuff coming out of the UK. And then, of course, there is my buddy Bob Nelbandian's endless array of metal podcasts. And, of course, his exclusive one on Cast Iron Ring is called The Couch of Metal with his buddy Tobey. Always good stuff. Sometimes they get a little bit drunk and you never know what they're going to say. But Couch of Metal, always cool stuff. And you can always check out some of the Couch of Metal videos up on YouTube as well. And if that wasn't enough, of course, Bob's also got his Shockwaves High Radio podcast. Stuff that's been running for years. Inspired a whole bunch of us to go into podcasting as well. Great stuff from Bob Nelbandian. I know I'm probably forgetting people. I mean, there's, there's what 12 shows on the ring. Can't go wrong urge you to go up to castironring.com check it out and I can tell you keep a close eye on the site because I think that very soon there might even be a brand new podcast joining up the ring just saying trust me you'll dig it castironring.com head up there you won't be disappointed all right time for me to stop preaching about the ring show's been long enough Thank you guys for listening. For those of you listening to us on Internet Radio, we appreciate the hell out of that. Keep on listening. Keep supporting Internet Radio. It's one of the greatest things that's going out there. It exposes people to new music. So I thank you for supporting these guys. I really appreciate it. It lets us and a lot of other great shows go out around the world, let you guys hear great stuff. And uh, let's just keep this whole thing going. Those of you listening on iTunes, we appreciate the hell out of you, too. And remember to leave a comment. Tell people about us. Let's bring in some more listeners. Let's keep this metal community growing. And at this point, I don't know where the hell else we're distributed. But I guess we keep popping up everywhere. So for all the rest of you, I really appreciate the hell of it. Richie does, too. Keep on listening, supporting us. It's a great thing. So with that, Scott Thompson for Richie and everybody else here on Focus on Metal telling you, have yourselves a great metal week. And until you hear from us again, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.